Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati, your host. On this episode, the future of crypto and the evolving role for Coinbase, a conversation with Faryar Shahzad, the chief policy officer of Coinbase and one of our nation's most respected voices in the financial system. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast, episode 38. A great conversation to be had with my good friend and remarkable professional, Faryar Shahzad. Faryar, welcome. Thank you, Juan. Happy to be here. Well, it's a real honor for us to have you, Faryar, to talk about the state of the crypto environment. For those who don't know you, they should know you, but let me just give a quick summary of your bio, which is incredibly impressive. Not only is Faryar the chief policy officer at Coinbase starting in May of 2021, but before that, for about 15 years, he was the co-head of government affairs for uh, Goldman Sachs. Before that, he worked at the White House as the deputy national security advisor for international economic affairs. That's where Faryar and I got to work together. And for those of you who don't know that role, that's one of the most critical roles in government. In fact, it has a special name, especially given the role that that person and Faryar had with the G8. Uh, economies. Uh, he was known as the G.H. Sherpa, which meant he got everything done internationally for the U.S. government on international economic issues. He has a storied career, and Coinbase was incredibly smart to bring him in to run their public policy shop and to run their issues. For full disclosure, I think most listeners know this. I've been an advisor to Coinbase since 2014, so uh, very much aware of their leadership and certainly of their decision to bring in Faryar, which was a, a masterstroke on their part. So Faryar, tell us, tell the listeners why you switched to Coinbase. You were at Goldman Sachs, the storied, perhaps most interesting traditional financial player in the industry. Why did you switch to crypto? And, and what did your family and friends say when you told them you were going to Coinbase? Well, it's a it's a funny uh, it's a funny story. You know, I've been at Goldman for 15 years, running government affairs or co-heading it over that period of time, and it was a hugely consequential time. I got there in 06 when nothing could you know nothing could go wrong. Uh, Goldman was at the pinnacle of its stature in the financial uh, industry. Obviously, an extraordinary uh, institution at an extraordinary time of economic growth. The financial crisis happened, and my career at Goldman, Goldman became defined by navigating the financial crisis and navigating the really kind of once in a lifetime period of global rulemaking and policy that was de developed around the traditional financial sector after governments all around the world, and including the United States, decided to, to try to look take a look at the financial regulatory framework and see if it was needed to be adjusted as a result of the lessons of the crisis. All of that played out through most of my career at Goldman. And over the last few years I was there, we really hit, hit kind of a more normalized period. And I was kind of thinking that it would be kind of an interesting time to do something different. And it was in that context, I got a call from a headhunter about Coinbase 
looking for someone. I didn't actually didn't know that much about Coinbase, but I had paid a little bit of attention to crypto and digital assets. And I thought it was worth a conversation. It was very, very quickly after I began talking to the folks at Coinbase, including Brian Armstrong, the CEO, that I realized that this could be another seminal moment, kind of that period in the, the financial sector went through where you had a really extraordinarily important uh, technological innovation that was going to upend existing regulatory frameworks and policymakers around the world doing a lot of work to try to figure it out. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I think the questions I got from, from folks were, I don't know what this crypto thing is. Uh, are you sure you want to do this? Tell me about this. Right. And most interestingly, I got those questions from a lot of friends who were regulators who were fascinated by my decision. I kind of wanted to hear, hear about it because they were looking at the sector too. So it was a lot, it was, it was a very long, it was really, it's been a really interesting journey, extraordinary, uh, the uh, exciting move for me, and and that transition was a was kind of one one chapter of many in a really uh, really interesting uh, two years I've had. Yeah, and, and how lucky is Coinbase to have you? Not only given your government experience, but that experience through the financial crisis in 08, 09 and at Goldman, just a remarkable wealth of experience. Faryar, how have you you know given that skepticism you heard from friends, family, colleagues? How have you addressed? especially now, the crypto skepticism, both in Washington, D.C. and in the traditional financial world. What, how do you explain how you think about the technology, its promise, and what Coinbase is trying to do in the industry? I find the easiest way to start that conversation is to talk about what the technology is, uh, because it's like the early Internet. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the early days of the Internet that was of low value, may have been offensive, may have been illegal. And it, you know, there was a risk that at that time we would have defined the technology of the internet by, by the parts of it that weren't to our taste. And with crypto, you know, the early stage of crypto that most people are familiar with is the retail trading and some of the excesses that we've all seen in, in that uh, regard. And so the best way I find in talking to policymakers is to boil down the essence of what crypto technology is. As you know, on the internet, you can initially, initially in the first stage of the internet, you could simply get on there and read content. Um, it was a big technological advance to allow people to get on the internet to not only read content, but to post content. So all the posting of information that we all do, message boards, or uh, really much of anything you do on it, in, or social media or what have you, that's what, that was actually, yeah. yeah, the interactive aspect of it was a huge innovation. Crypto is the third iteration of the internet. It's the ability not only to read and write content, but also to uh, transmit value. That you have these unique tokens that are representations of ownership interest that you control as the user, and you can move it without needing to ask a bank to do it or ask an intermediary to do it. That is a extraordinary innovation, and it manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. And at its core, that technology is so profoundly important as we all live our lives online that you have to protect it and make sure that it, that the applications that are being developed for it are allowed to run their course. And I think when the conversation starts at that level, it makes everything else a lot easier. Although, you know, they're really hard issues for sure that we can talk about. But I think that first principles thing is, a, is an important starting point. Yeah, that's a great way of framing it. Uh, Faryar, in part because I think 
for most people, their experience with crypto, you know, stems from the last couple of years where there's been sort of crypto euphoria meeting all of the speculative elements of, of the trading and certainly the scandals like FTX and the Terra Luna episode. And, and so there's, it seems to me like the crypto industry has suffered in part because of that bulge of attention and euphoria uh, that met sort of the, the the tail end of the bull market. And now you've got a crypto winter, maybe even a crypto blizzard that's affecting the industry. I mean, how, how would you describe where the industry sits now and beginning to talk maybe about some of the major challenges for Coinbase in particular, but for the crypto industry that wants to be legitimate? Yeah, it's interesting. If you talk, if you if you listen to Brian or to our uh, Emily Choi, our C, our COO, they both and they say this behind closed doors as much as they say in public that the down markets are actually a, a period of opportunity. When I joined Coinbase, it was a period of ex extraordinary exuberance in crypto, and the challenge of the company was really keeping up with the consumer demand. The demand and obviously the markets have, have settled dramatically since those highs. Uh, but what they've allowed the company to do and other quality players in the industry is to focus on building and innovating. And what it's also done is it just sort of washed away a lot of the kind of the less reputable players, a lot of the opportunists, and frankly, a lot of the fraudsters that were in the economy. You know, you saw, or in the crypto economy, so you saw a lot of bad actors, FTX and others get washed away. You know, some of that is still happening. And I think that's ultimately healthy for those of us who are kind of building for the long haul. And you've seen like, and Coinbase is a good example of this. I mean, if you think about what we've done over the last year, we've launched in probably six international markets. We launched the international exchange. Uh, we launched a partnership with BlackRock uh, where we integrated Coinbase into the Aladdin platform, which is used by their, I think, 8,000 asset manager management clients. Uh, we've launched Base, which is a kind of a breakthrough revolutionary level uh, layer two protocol uh, that's made transactions faster, cheaper, uh, uh, and uh, easier to navigate. Uh, and that's become an enormous success that people are adopting. And so the building that's occurring in places like crypt in Coinbase is really important. And while people are looking at the highs relative to where we are now, it's also important to look at the building that's occurring. I mean, one last data point before, before I close this uh, answer out is that there are people who track software, open source, courts, open source code software development activity. And it's really interesting to see, even though the market value of crypto has dropped dramatically from a, the highs about a year or so ago, the amount of developer activity has actually stayed largely unabated. And it gives you a sense that engineers and the talent and, and the programmers who are working on the future of the internet and the adoption of blockchain technology are still at it. They're committing their careers to it because they see the opportunity to build in there. And so... You know, we'll get out of this winter. The market will look different on the other end. Hopefully, we'll have regulations in the U.S. and most international markets, and it'll reward the better players uh, and wash out the, the bad actors. But it could be a great, great opportunity, ultimately, when we come out on the other end. Yeah, it's a great point, Fire. We, we, we make it with our clients and, and just publicly when we talk about these issues. You know, the technologies 
continuing to evolve and, and innovation is continuing to follow in this space, even though it feels like the U.S. is restricting activities, there's more enforcement action, more regulatory skepticism, it feels like in the, in the zeitgeist. But internationally and otherwise with the technology, there is a lot going on, even in the U.S., where you've got PayPal and Visa and Bank of New York all announcing you know, digital asset or crypto-related projects or settlement facilities. There's a lot happening in this space. And those who've declared the death of crypto, I think, just aren't paying attention. I think you're right that what's going to come out the back end are institutions that are stronger and, and hopefully more compliance and more clarity uh, in that regard. Let me ask you this, because it relates to, to this point. So much of crypto has been viewed through the lens of risk, right? From the early days, risk of money laundering, risk of consumer fraud, risk of sanctions evasion, risk of North Korea taking advantage, uh, accelerating ransomware. This question of is this good for national security, bad for national security? How do you how do you address that? How do you address the challenges of the risks, which are real, balanced with the opportunities that you've, you've started to describe? Well, for sure, there's risk in crypto. There's no doubt about it. And, and there've been some high-profile incidents of ransomware and things like that that have occurred on crypto. Uh, but I think what what law enforcement has discovered is that if you had a choice, and Juan, you can speak to this better than anyone, of having a criminal undertake illicit activity on the blockchain versus on traditional financial plumbing, uh, the blockchain has a lot of advantages for prosecutors. For one thing, the, the blockchain is completely transparent. Uh, it's immutable. It's permanent. You can access it without subpoenas. And every transaction that occurs on the blockchain actually is there for anyone to see. And so and now, obviously, the wallet addresses are, not, are pseudonymous, although you can, through analytics, often determine who does what on a particular transaction. And so one of the big things that we've done is sort of underscore that the amount of illicit activity that occurs on crypto is, by most measures, actually far below what you find in the traditional financial sector, but that there's also a criticality for law enforcement to develop the capabilities to do the analytics necessary to interdict or, or catch criminals when illicit activity occurs. Now, we do a lot of that in-house, but we also bring law enforcement into crypto. We do a rotation program for Secret Service agents and others to teach them analytics. And it's a great partnership we have with the key kind of government agencies who need to develop expertise in this area. And I think I think for those people who learn more about it, I think they see the opportunity. I think the issue we really have is with some of the politicians who just don't know enough about it and want a headline. And 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 I think uh, it's our job to kind of make sure they understand that whatever the headline may be, the actual professionals in the space understand that this technology actually has a lot of potential from a law enforcement perspective. Yeah, and just just to echo, sorry, I can't help myself because I love this topic and this theme. Because I think there's been, frankly, a lack of risk maturation in the space, right? And I think like any other technology, there has to be risk management, risk uh, balancing. And there are all sorts of opportunities from a law enforcement intelligence, national security perspective, whether it's on clawbacks, you know, the two largest Department of Justice seizures uh, in history have come through the ability to claw back through crypto and looking at historical on-chain transactions and relationships, thinking about using the technology to reinforce transparency and accountability, especially in highly corrupt 
environments. You know, we've seen some of those experiments in Venezuela, some talks of that in Afghanistan. So I, I agree with you. There's, we can go on and on about this, but there's been a lack of uh, maturity around thinking about how to attack the risks because uh, there, there are risks, but how, how to actually take advantage of the technology as well. Um, and I'll tell you firsthand, you know, Coinbase has taken this seriously from the very beginnings, when at least when I when I was most uh, involved with them. So I think it's an important uh, feature of what Coinbase does. In terms of Coinbase, you know, Coinbase is, you know, Brian, Brian is now famous for keeping everyone's eye on the ball at Coinbase, not getting distracted with other things that aren't focused on the mission of the business. But, you know, in recent months, uh, Brian and you and Coinbase have really taken on a leadership role in the industry, pushing back against the regulators and pushing back against this notion of regulation by enforcement. You've been a major voice calling for regulation and regulatory clarity. You know, what what is what are you trying to do with the platform of Coinbase? And how do you see Coinbase leading the industry in the in the weeks and months to come? It's a, it's a great question, Juan. So a couple of things. One is we want in the U.S. what we want and what we're actually seeing happen. Most of the other major G20 economies around the world is for the national government, in this case, Congress and the president to develop legislation that creates, creates a consistent national regulatory framework around crypto intermediaries like Coinbase. So companies like us who intermediate people's transactions in crypto, we think should be subject to a federal regulatory framework that's consistent across you know, all 50 states. And we're very eager for that to happen. And there's been really important progress on bipartisan legislation that's worked its way through the House Financial Services Committee, which oversees the SEC, and the House Agriculture Committee, which oversees the CFTC. So those two committees working collaboratively, which doesn't always happen, each uh, uh, reported out of their committee's um, legislation to create a new market structure, and they got significant bipartisan support on both uh, in both committees. And so we're excited for that to go to the floor in November, probably for a vote, and then ultimately to the Senate and hopefully beyond. And so what we've done is we've tried to make sure that the crypto community, including the 52 million Americans who bought crypto at some point, and the tens of millions who can currently continue to hold crypto, which, by the way, demographically is a very diverse part of the American population, probably tends to skews a bit younger, more people of color, uh, more people who want to be a part of the financial system and maybe are, are left out of the traditional financial system to participate in crypto. We want all of them to have a voice in the policymaking process. So we've started this program called Stand With Crypto, and we've helped launch an independent organization called Stand With Crypto Alliance that's organizing the public to make sure they have a voice in the process. So on Wednesday, there are about 40 crypto founders, so CEOs of crypto companies, small and large from all across the country. So these are American innovators and job creators are coming to Washington to talk to uh, members of Congress and hopefully to the administration. And we're allowing um, and we're helping the public, all the people who own crypto in the, in the country who want to kind of encourage Congress to do the right thing, to hear their voice. And we've had about 100 plus thousand people sign up uh, to be crypto advocates. Uh, and it's beginning to get noticed uh, among 
uh, you know, policymakers and members of Congress, and we're very excited to help catalyze that. I think Coinbase has a unique obligation uh, to help the community, and and we take that very seriously. And as you said, Brian, at the top of the <laughs> top of the line, and pushing all of us to do more in that regard. Yeah, it's it's been a, a remarkable set of actions, and um, frankly, tone from the top, where it's clear that that's the role that Brian's taking. In some ways, I think Faryar filling a void. You and he and others filling a void. Um, you know, speaking on behalf of the industry, the technology, and the the people and the investors that are interested in it. And so, it's, it's fascinating in part because it strikes me as a as an outsider uh, looking at Coinbase that. You know, you're trying to become a center of gravity, and you are a center of gravity, both in terms of the innovation, the products and services you were describing earlier, whether it's base or the derivatives exchange or, or the other things you've developed, and then from a public advocacy uh, perspective, you're 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 becoming an all-purpose force in the industry. It strikes me. Yeah, it's actually really interesting, Juan. I'll, I'll kind of answer your, I'll sort of respond with a bit of a slight digression. You know, one of the things that I did when I joined Coinbase is I started becoming much more active on Twitter, uh, which is now X, uh, which was not natural for me. It's not really something I ever did much. But I realized early on that many, many, many thousands of crypto people are online and there's a community out there. And I had to, if I was actually going to be the, chief policy officer for the leader of the crypto industry in the United States and maybe the world, I need I had an obligation to have those folks hear from me and to hear from them and to be in dialogue and to kind of be have my finger much deeper into the pulse of where the community is. And for all the sort of, you know, aspects of, of Twitter or X that people like or don't like, there's an authenticity to the dialogue that occurs there. And I think that's been really important. It's something that I've never really had to do in my career ever before. And the Stand With Crypto, a platform that we're creating where we already have 100 plus thousand people signed up, we're trying to create a mechanism where they can also have a voice, not just through Twitter, but in ways that policymakers were here in terms of communicating directly with their, with their members of Congress. And there's a an app we've developed where you can get on and if you put your address in, it lets you send an email and lets you directly dial your member of Congress. And all of that's really important, but it, but there's also a degree of accountability that Brian operates under and all of us know we need to operate under because this community is organically developed. It's sort of loosely organized and it's a lot of people who see the empowering potential of the technology because you can move value and information and ownership individually through this te the technology, the applications are broad, that we need to kind of be in dialogue with these with uh, with uh, with these folks. And uh, it's it's exciting to be a part of it. I feel like I'm a, we're being making a uh, we're being a part. We're part of and shaping history. And uh, it's it's a real privilege to be a part of that. Yeah. And for listeners, your handle on X, formerly Twitter, is at Faryar Shazad. Uh, so those who want to follow Faryar, go ahead and uh, follow him. Uh, by the way, I learned, I follow you, Faryar. I follow Paul Grewal. I obviously follow Brian. And I actually learn a lot from just uh, the postings, especially on the legal side from Paul, who explains a lot of the uh, the legal positions that, that Coinbase takes or has taken. Let me ask you a couple of questions, Faryar, with respect to the, the call for regulatory clarity. Uh, and you've pointed out the fact that 
you know, Coinbase wants there to be more regulatory clarity, especially for centralized institutions like Coinbase or like Circle that that are in the middle as intermediaries uh, in this ecosystem. Can you speak to what Coinbase would ideally like to see, what you would like to see, and the tension that exists with a technology that is inherently disintermediated and decentralized when we've got regulatory structures that are built around intermediation and regulation of clearinghouses and nodes like big banks, dollar clearing banks, and and even virtual asset service providers. Can you talk to kind of your vision of what the regulatory future should look like? Oh, for sure. So um, what there should be is for crypto intermediaries like us, like, like, like uh, Coinbase, uh, that facilitate the trading of crypto tokens in, uh, on the part of the public, uh, we need to be subject to oversight by the Securities and Exchange Commission for any crypto securities that we may list on the platform, that we, which we don't, by the way, at the moment, and crypto commodities that we list, which is what we offer at the moment, under the, uh, which should be supervised under the authority of the uh, CFTC. So there should be a national framework divided among these two regulators that oversees the trading of crypto tokens, whether they're commodities or securities, and ensures that we're protecting customer accounts, uh, protecting their assets, uh, that we're managing the company effectively, uh, that we're not misusing client information, and that clients have recourse if something goes wrong. In most other jurisdictions around the world, they, in most other major jurisdictions, they've already gone a long way to adopting this type of framework. It's a lot easier everywhere else in the world because there's only one market regulator. So mm -hmm. most jurisdictions have sort of very quickly told their market regulator, hey, go regulate the space, but recognize the difference in the technology and see what the rule set should look like. In the US, we have two different market regulators. We have a jurisdictional split based on this divide between securities and commodities. And so it's become infinitely politically, it's become difficult uh, to navigate largely for political reasons because you have a CFTC that is, doesn't have currently legal authority to regulate the spot markets of crypto and an SEC which could take some steps towards providing clarity around the trading of crypto, but it's instead the current chair has decided to try to drive the industry largely offshore for reasons that none of us fully can get our arms around. Uh, but the rules should be in a normal, less politicized environment, quite simple. I mean, in other words, we should do what the EU has done, what the UK is doing, Singapore, Australia, Canada, and so on. And then there should be AML controls. So there should be sort of Bank Secrecy Act type protections to make sure that we're undertaking appropriate controls to make sure illicit activity doesn't occur on the platform. None of that is all that complicated, Juan. It's quite simple to do, but like a lot of things in Washington, we've become politicized. Although, thankfully, we haven't become a partisan issue like most other things have, notwithstanding the fact that a few politicians, Elizabeth Warren, Gary Gensler, and others, are, have become quite hostile to crypto and become very aggressive about it. I, uh, I, my dialogue with, me with members of Congress, people are generally open-minded, trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. And we're hoping this legislation we talked about ultimately uh, is able to work its way through at least the House and hopefully through the Senate and beyond. Barr, you, you mentioned something about the sense that you have and the industry certainly has the technology 
the innovators in the space are being pushed offshore. Um, how how serious is that? And do you worry about industry players, investment, kind of innovative ecosystems, all landing in other places that have greater regulatory clarity, or frankly, are, have a welcome mat out for these kinds of technologies and investors? What's your what's your sense of that? Well, I worry on two levels. Um, well, three levels I worry about it. One is I lo- worry about the loss of the American innovative advantage. So it's hard to measure this thing, so it's imprecise, but I think it was Electric Capital did a analysis on it. Their estimate was just a few years ago, we had about a 40% of open source code software development was occurring in the United States. We l- we're now losing about 2% share a year. We're now down to about 29%, about on par with the European Union. So the idea that the next iteration of the internet is occurring and the and the technological work behind it is now not unquestionably US-based, but it's now as much in Europe as it is in the United States, uh, should be a wake-up call for jobs, for innovation, and the rest. The second thing I worry about is the worst of the crypto behavior has been on offshore platforms. Now, a lot of the G20 countries are adopting rules, but you still have offshore jurisdictions like the ones where the FTX was based that are homes to bad actors who flout like high standards. And for people who think FTX was bad, the worst thing we could do is to drive innovate, drive you know the industry out of high, high standard jurisdictions like the United States. Ultimately, that's more damaging than anything. And the third part one, which you and I've done talked a lot about is the national security dimension of it. Right. There is extraordinary interest in this technology on the part of economies around the world. One economy in particular has been an early leader in this is China. China has banned private crypto, but they've invested heavily in adopting a closed loop blockchain uh, technology, essentially mirroring their closed internet system. They've got a token-based Chinese uh, RMB, the the digital wand that they've issued. Beijing just announced a Web3 center for innovation. Uh, China's gone in big in this technology, and they've just recently made Hong Kong the offshore center for for international crypto. And we are, uh, there's going to be a moment in which, based on conversations people like you and I have, Juan, that I think broader set of policymakers will begin to understand what's happening, that there's a race on, even if not every U.S. policymaker knows that. And I'm hoping that happens. People realize that before it's too late. Yeah, Fari, if you'll allow me just a, a, an echo of, of this point, because I feel passionately about it. It's, it's shocking to me that we are not recognizing, in terms of policymakers and, and legislators, that this is part of a broader national economic security challenge, right? What's the future of the financial system look like? Uh, what's the role of the dollar? Even the Europeans have said their regulation in this space is intended to uh, you know, loosen, if not uh, undermine, dependency on the dollar as well as on U.S. technology. And you know, at a time when we're very sensitive to all the dependencies we have on China and others, supply chain risks. We're doing ally shoring in different uh, ways. We're worried about semiconductors. We're controlling outbound investment on key technologies. And we've been through the five G episode where we we've had to cajole and beg and and uh, and threaten. Uh, countries around the world that have adopted uh, Huawei and Chinese technologies uh, without an alternative. It's shocking to me that it's in that context that we're not recognizing 
that crypto is is part of that landscape and part of that debate and and we can't be absent from it to your point we can't lose the innovation we shouldn't lose the driving force of defining the norms and the standards so i'll get off my soapbox for a second because this isn't about <laughs> me it's about interviewing youth but but yeah, i couldn't help it couldn't help it but fire let me a couple more questions uh we could go on for a couple hours i think can you speak especially given your prior role as the gh sherpa I mean, you dealt with central banks and finance ministries around the world all the time. Uh, you worked with IMF, World Bank. Can you speak to all of the experimentation happening in the central bank digital currency space and with stable coins? This also relates to Coinbase's recent decision to take a stake in Circle. And Circle, of course, of course is the uh, issuer of USDC, private sector stable coin. Can you speak to what's happening in the environment with central banks and stable coins? You refer to China, but there are others as well. Yeah, so it starts with that technology innovation that we talked about, the ability to move value, our ownership interests through the blockchain. So when people think about cryptos, there's three sort of broad categories of crypto. One is uh, the CBDC, the central bank digital currency. And this is something that central banks are experimenting with and the Chinese have led the way on, which is to take their home domestic currency and tokenize it so that it can move on the blockchain and can use, uh, be used on blockchain-based applications. And most central banks around the world are, are in the process of developing some version of a tokenized home currency. And so there's a proliferation of central bank digital currencies that we're seeing at least work being done on and with China's being the leading one. The second category are stable coins, and these are privately issued tokens that are backed by fiat currency. And so USDC is one of the leading stable coins that Coinbase has a partnership with. And the way that works is that you can give USDC a dollar and they'll give you a dollar token. And that token can operate just like the fiat currency can and can navigate the blockchain based on uh, and, and be used for value. And, and for people who may not be familiar with the space, last year, I think there was $11.3 trillion of transactions settled using stablecoins, $11.3 trillion. Wow. So I didn't realize not, it was that much volume. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, it gives you a sense of the volume. And then the third category, which is, is the one that we're all familiar with is just the crypto tokens. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Litecoin, and so on and so on. And so these are tokens that operate on networks and each of these networks have a different functionality profiles and the tokens are traded sometimes in secondary markets based on the value that people attribute to them, but they're not backed by anything, any hard currency, they're backed by whatever value the market applies to them. And so you're seeing a huge amount of innovation. Now there's some, host not hostility, some nervousness that you hear from some certain central banks about crypto because they worry that it might supplant uh, fiat currency. And that's why you're seeing so many central banks adopting tokenized currencies or CBDCs. Uh, but it was really interesting actually, and it's just a, one more point, Juan, is that the, Bank for International Settlement, which you know is the organizing body of the world's central banks, they just issued a paper by a guy named Tobias Adrian, who's a very prominent uh, IMF official, essentially 
um, putting a conceptual paper out about whether there could be a blockchain-based settlement mechanism adopted to improve on the current system by which you settle cross-border uh, foreign exchange transactions. So the transactions between currencies, which are a really important part of the global economy, but a very clunky, complicated thing to execute on in real time, as you know, on from, from your work. And they were mooning that perhaps we could create a settlement token. The BIS said that the central banks perhaps could create one. Now, the chances that central banks are going to get together and agree on a central settlement token seems unlikely, but it shows you that when people say, I don't know what this crypto thing is, I don't know if it has any applications, you don't need to look much further than Visa, like you talked about earlier, or the BIS now with this paper, who understand the power of the technology and are just working through what the application potentials are. And I think that's very, very exciting, uh, but it's a very formative period in figuring out what the future looks like. Yeah, and that's a powerful example, too, because uh, Augustine Karstens, who's the head of the BIS, former, as you know, <laughs> former brilliant uh, head of the Mexican Central Bank, has been a kind of a crypto skeptic extraordinaire. <laughs> and uh, and to have that come out of the BIS is, is important. Uh, it's, a, it's an important message as well as from the Fed, when the Fed has talked about the exploration of a digital dollar, the recognition that this is a potentially revolutionary technology, uh, just admitting that outright. Now, whether or not they, they want to issue a digital dollar is a different question, but I think to your point, there is there's more and more recognition that this technology is really important and uh, needs to be explored. But let me ask you, I, I said two more questions. I, I'm going I'm to keep two in reserve here. Do you think the industry has been struggling in part because there have not been these use cases developed fast enough, right? Uh, the alternative to low-cost remittances, better payments or settlements, better ability to do different kind of, of trading, et cetera. All the, all the things that have been hoped and promised for, including financial inclusion, have not fully materialized. Do you think that's been a challenge to the industry? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, and Brian Armstrong, our CEO, says this a lot. He said, you know, the most powerful policy strategy we could have in crypto is to accelerate the development of uh, the use cases that are resonant with the public. And right now, there's a lot of really, really interesting use cases to digitalize ID, to make remittances cheaper and easier uh, as a settlement um, um, mechanism, uh, and so on. But you know, we're still at the early stages and the applications are just not yet at a level where the casual observer kind of knows that crypto is a part of their lives and it'll come. But it's just, you know, the, the problem we have is that you've got in some jurisdictions, the United States being the leading example of this, where you've got a few politicians trying to shut the industry down before the technology has a chance to adapt. And again, it's worth underscoring what I said earlier. This is very different. You know, when we go to the UK or Canada or Brazil or Singapore, or Australia or Hong Kong or EU, uh, throughout the EU, the reaction is completely different. Their reaction is typically, hey, this technology is going to have traction. We don't quite know what the use cases are. Our job is not to uh, miss, uh, direct, uh, you know, shut this thing down. Uh, quite the opposite. We actually want the innovation and the jobs to come here, and we're going to provide clarity for the things that we know we need to regulate now, and we'll regulate other things as the need arises. And 
as an American, it's disappointing that that commonsensical view is so prevalent everywhere but the United States. But I, I hope we, I hope we'll get there. And activating the community through Stand With Crypto, I think, will be an important part of, the, of that. All right, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Maybe just one last question. I'm just sort of asking you, given your job, given your role for Coinbase, everything that you're seeing and doing, you know, what's something that really worries you about the, the future uh, of this industry and, and, and your role? And what really excites you that people may not be aware of? Well, the thing that worries me is not about the industry as much as it is about uh, American public policy. You know, I'm a, I, I love, I'm an immigrant, Vaughn, as you know. Uh, I have a extraordinary, passionate love affair with this country that took my family in and saved us and protected us at a time when we had to flee our own country. I mean, we happened to be in the U.S. at the time, but they get, you know, the U.S. gave us refuge. So I, I do, I've been in government stuff my whole life, but as somebody who's still kind of in awe of this country and still in awe of being here and to see uh, a really important innovation that I think is important for keeping the, uh, the United States on the ed cutting edge of job creation, innovation, national security, and seeing how hard it is to get a few politicians to stop fighting the innovation and allowing for this to develop is, 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 I take it more personally than I realize. It's hard to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to watch. Yeah. Um, and then the thing that excites me is that the applications are occurring. What also excites me is that traditional financial sector is getting into this, uh, just like um, a lot of other companies are. The amount of adoption of this technology is enormous, and there'll be challenges that come with it. But the dynamism of the American economy is there. It's just a just a few politicians getting in the way of it. I think is really painful to watch. But I think with time and with elections, uh, I think we'll get past it, and and the U.S. will kind of retain its place as the home for innovation, uh, with all the complexities associated with that. And if I could, before we wrap up on, uh, uh, for people who are wondering about Stand With Crypto, it's the website is standwithcrypto.org. Uh, it's also on Twitter at, at StandWithCrypto, all one word. Uh, and I encourage folks who are interested in this to, to look there or to look on the Coinbase.com public hyphen policy website where a lot of the content that my team and I produce are, are also available. Yeah, Faryar, thank you for that. And, and just another note, I know Coinbase has done groundbreaking work uh, thanks to Brian Armstrong on crypto philanthropy as well. And so that's that's another piece of the puzzle that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but maybe next time. Farah, you, your, your professional and personal story is so inspiring uh, to me, to those of us who've had the privilege of working with you, uh, and hopefully now to our listeners who've had a chance to uh, to meet you and to learn from you. Um, I hope this is the, the first of many conversations we can share with the the FinCast audience, uh, but I've certainly learned a lot from you, Faryar, as usual, and I want to thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Juan. You've been a great friend and colleague for 20 years now, and I, I'm grateful for every bit of it. I'm pleased to be a part of this conversation. Thank you, Faryar. It's my privilege. And to the listeners of FinCast, thank you for taking time with us. That was a wonderful conversation with Faryar Shazad. We will catch you next time on FinCast. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of FinCast. FinCast is produced by Alex Bu and Nick Fernandez. They do a great job. Thank you, gentlemen. FinCast is available where other podcasts can be found. 
certainly on our website at www.k2integrity.com and on our Dolphin platform. That's the dedicated online financial integrity network. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Certainly enjoy past episodes and share those that you think are interesting and important. We look forward to having you back next time on FinCast.